Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the digital workspace inner workings. Uh, welcome, Chris, to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Do you want to tell us a little about yourself and who you're with? Uh, yes. Hello. Uh, my name is Chris Denby White. I'm the Global Director of Customer Success for a little company called Next DLP. We're a kind of new next generation data loss protection platform. However, my sojourn into the kind of the vendor space is kind of pretty new for me. Prior to that, um, I was working in Deutsche Bank in the office of the CISO, running their provision access teams. And prior to that, I was uh, working with the Metropolitan Police in cyber intelligence in their counterterrorism division, SO15. Great. Well, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. I think we get a few things we could talk about there. Maybe to start off with, it, with an easy question, what does the digital workspace mean for you? Well, the digital workspace in kind of a broader sense is people's use of IT and communications platforms to collaborate, to do business, and to understand kind of the world around them. It's a, it's actually quite a, a broad-reaching, um, broad-reaching definition there. And how have you found, you know, going from I'd almost say the client side to the vendor side? How, has that shifted much for you? It has actually. You know, I've always been kind of very much interested in understanding what's out there technology-wise. So whenever I'd go to a trade show from the client side, I'd make a point of speaking to kind of all the booths to understand, hey, what are people doing? What are the problems that vendors are trying to solve? And understanding how I might learn stuff. It's a big learning opportunity there to do. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, you know, all these different companies are more than happy to talk to me because I am, at the end of the day, a potential lead. And something that I hadn't necessarily been as aware of as maybe I should have been is that when you flip over to not being on the client side, suddenly, you know, your attractiveness for conversations plummets somewhat. And, uh, you know, there are kind of, you're met by a spectrum of different responses, some quite cynical and paranoid, you know, are am I trying to spy on another company? And the answer to that is generally, no, absolutely not. I'm yeah. just, as I have always been, really interested in learning what's out there and what challenges people are facing and how people are kind of combating those challenges. So I think that cultural difference of kind of ducking behind the curtain of Vendorland has been uh, somewhat strong. Yeah, I think I've been through that as well. You know, you and you, and you get to know certain people as, as the customer and then you, you go back to being a vendor and they're like, yeah, now, you, now you're eating my pie instead of instead of being uh, there to, 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 to buy the pie. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, now, you said next generation DLP. What makes it different to, to the traditional DLPs that are out there? Well, that's a great, well, that's a great question. Yeah, I've kind of worked in various DLP projects when I've been on the purchasing side, and they've always been quite slow. You know, it's categorize your data, then have some static rules. And for a long time, it was a box that you put inside organization with a whole load of rules to kind of stop bad things happening. And that, you know, from having implemented it and having used it, to my mind, has caused a lot of friction when I was working in government and when I was working in kind of, kind of the bank. You'd be trying to do your everyday job and all of a sudden you'd get blocked from doing something. You know, I'm not a malicious user, but, you know, I'm stopped from doing essentially my day job. So I'm like, oh, OK, so how do I actually do this the correct way? 
Now, we at NextDLP have kind of turned this on on its head. First and foremost, we're not a blinky box in the data center using legacy technology. Because if we remember, you know, the data loss protection market and a lot of the technologies are almost 20, 25 years old. And they're addressing the problems that were 20, 25 years ago, where people were sitting in offices, behind computers, on corporate networks. So what we do is we start with the notion of visibility. Because, you know, as the Sands Institute says, um, if you want to identify evil or you want to identify malicious or potentially dangerous activity, you have to first understand what normal is. So we have a lightweight endpoint agent that sits on Windows, Linux, and Mac. And it firstly sees all of the activities of the computer. And from there, you can determine what actions you want to take or what's risky and what's not risky. Layer on top of that is that we don't just kind of block people. We enter into kind of a situation where we protect the users and the data from themselves and then point them to the correct way. For example, you know, if a lot of people use PDF conversion sites, that's a, that was always a big bugbear of mine when I was on client side. Somebody has a very sensitive spreadsheet and they need it in a PDF to send for a document. They usually go to Google and say, how do I convert this from Excel to PDF? And Google will tell them, you know, just upload it to Honest John's PDF conversion site who promises that once he's done the PDF conversion, he's definitely going to destroy that data and his servers are definitely not in the garage of his mum's house, you know, which we can all agree is quite risky. So rather than just kind of block those activities at the perimeter, we in our platform can understand this is happening. You know, we can block it, protect them from themselves, but also at the same time at the point of risk, inform the user, hey, look, it looks like you're trying to convert an Excel to a PDF. Did you know that you can click file save as PDF now in most Microsoft applications? Or this is the security policy that you are running the risk of breaching. So it's reducing friction by lifting people from a path of non-compliance, enabling them to do their job and putting them on the safe path in one smooth process. And that's that is kind of the key difference there. Yeah, and I think there's there's a level of the conscious doing the right doing the thing knowing that you're breaching the policy and trying to get away with it. Mm. There's the unconscious doing something to get your work done and not realizing you're breaching breaching a policy. And then there's probably a murky place in the middle between that where you did something and breached a policy. You you knew you were going to breach a policy potentially, but you weren't sure how to to get approval to do it. Absolutely, because when people get onboarded into companies, they get front loaded with all these information security policies. Maybe Mm. the company's really advanced cyber training but that's great. And often it's a next, 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 next complete endeavor with the cyber training. But actually, when users need the information around making wise decisions in relation to protecting the company's data is at the point of risk. So, you know, I'm not saying don't do cybersecurity training. Absolutely, that's an important thing to do. But as users sell close to these specific use cases of doing the wrong thing, it's not just about saying bad user, naughty user. It's about saying, look, we know you have a job to do. This is the correct way. Let's facilitate that way in which you can do this in a safe way. Absolutely. And I think it's that murky side that is the greatest risk. Yeah, I mean, look, I've had situations where we've had consultants come in, they've done some work, and then they've emailed the work home, or they've tried to load the work or something like that. And, you know, we've had sophisticated DLP teams that have picked it up and, you know, it's been escalated and, you know, it was probably an avoidable thing if we just picked it up with something simple at the beginning, saying, look, this is a, you know, here's the warning, don't do this. If you still proceed, then you know, this will be flagged. 
and, and the guy pleaded ignorance that he didn't know that he was breaching the policy. But, you know, it's, I think it's one of those things that when you when you work as a consultant, you know that the, the, the content's not yours. You've, you've generated for a company and it belongs to the company. Uh, and then I've had the other one where, you know, an innocent business user has used their personal laptop for something and they've deployed the corporate stuff on it, you know, under the BYOD policies, and they've mm. dragged the file from their personal Dropbox to their corporate OneDrive, and we've yes. picked it up and vice versa, and they never thought for a second that they brought something private in that belongs to the company now. No, absolutely, and that's something we see a lot, and almost in reverse as well, in that a lot of companies I've worked with and I currently work with are embracing this Microsoft journey or GCP journey. You know, other cloud platforms are available, of course. But they're saying in that, okay, SharePoint Online, OneDrive for Business, that is the place to put your sensitive corporate data. And companies build their security frameworks and their security controls around that. Yet many companies in the back of their minds, they're thinking, hang on. So if we're protecting this OneDrive for business. What's to stop someone signing in with a Hotmail account or a live account and putting things either deliberately or accidentally or syncing deliberately or accidentally to their personal account when actually it shouldn't be there and may have a lesser level of security? And that's one of the main use cases that we address at Next DLP as well, in that we've got this really cool thing where we can identify the difference between personal and corporate and alert, block, and guard around that basis as well. So where you have laptops configured to sync to the wrong place, we can go, hey, look, it's syncing to the wrong place. Let's put this data in the right place. So either way, you don't have that issue. And that's something, that's a big, big thing when we talk around these cloud storage providers. So, I mean, if we, if we look at, at the kind of information that is at risk for DLP, what, what, do you, what do you currently see? I mean, what are the things that, you know, a person that doesn't know, because you, know, you mentioned in the beginning, people get this training and the training is always generic. Even though it's not, even though it's not meant to be, because I, if I think about some of the training I've been on, you know, I worked in banks, so you'd see like the banking example, but it's never stuff that I'd ever do. So I wouldn't be dealing with clients. I wouldn't be dealing with with um, client documentation, you know, bank statements and all that kind of stuff. I was always on the technology side. So my my example should have been an architectural document, a uh, a set of IP addresses, um, that sort of stuff that should be protected. But the training never covers that. It always covers the sort of banking, financial services stuff. You know, if you want to give examples of things that people should look for and, and be aware that they're potentially bordering on DLP, what would you what would you say those are? No, that's great, and you're absolutely right. It does depend on kind of the the industry and the use case. Uh, but I I would think in the first pass, some of the easy stuff to do is it's things that contain PII. PCI data, so things like kind of personal identifiable information, so names, email addresses, identifiers, as, as you say, things like credit card numbers, identity numbers, that's kind of the easy stuff in data loss prevention. But then there's the other things around kind of cyber hygiene and making it difficult for attackers. You've alluded to some of yourself, things like kind of diagrams of architecture. We do, uh, we do a lot of business with, uh, with some software companies as well. And in their use cases, it's things like snippets and elements of their source code, ensuring that they are indeed pushed to the correct GitHub and not somebody's personal one, you know, either on purpose or by accident. Similar use case to the Google Drive question. However, it's all around those things that the data should be in a place. Well, firstly, when we talk about data loss, it's more around data tracking. Because if you imagine in the consultancy world, as you've mentioned, you know, you can have data loss without 
the data ever leaving the company walls. If you have, for example, a Chinese wall situation within a consultancy that actually information can't pass between this boundary between different clients or between different uh, kind of areas of the company. The same in banking as well, between you know investment banks and private banks and corporate banks. Being able to track the movement of that data as well as the specifics of it is really, really key. Are you, are you doing something around tagging the content? Well that's, that? well, that's well, that's a really interesting thing. What we do is we don't do the discovery and the tagging of the content. We do, however, kind of integrate. If people have done tagging already with things like uh, AIP, MIP, or whatever, we can use those. Our technology focuses more on real-time content inspection. And for the reason that we really want to do data loss prevention in an entirely different way, because the classic way of implementing data loss, speaking from experience, I've seen, seen this, is first step is discovery exercise. So you buy some software or a big beefy server that crawls literally all of your data, you know, in use or not in use across your whole infrastructure. And what you get back is a kind of a big report that says something along the lines of you have 586,000 files that may contain some data that is sensitive. And then the upshot of this, please go and read these 586,000 files to confirm whether or not this is true. And at this point, these files have not moved anywhere. They're sitting on a server inside a perimeter. And that's a, you know, that kind of exercise potentially may need to happen if we're talking around, you know, retention exercises and records mapping. But that isn't really really around data loss and around cybersecurity. It's more around the information controllers piece. So what we do is we implement real-time content inspection at the time at, at kind of the point of risk. So you will have classifiers to identify sensitive data. And it's when that data is touched, moved, or passes through a clipboard that we expose that data at the point of access to a to basically a question as to is this sensitive, is this not? And if it is sensitive, okay, so what decisions around this data do you want to make? Do you want to block the fact that this document goes to a PDF conversion site or is emailed to these specific people or is even accessed at all or is written to USB? So we enable through that process companies to kind of install the software and start seeing insights and start controlling things very, very quickly without having to go through that often multi-year process of tagging and classifying everything. Yeah, and that's a nightmare. It really is. I was just thinking about something while you were while you were explaining that, and I was just wondering, like, is there a performance impact when you do that? So, so okay, copy and paste is probably not an issue because you either copy an image or you're copying text, and that's pretty small usually, depending on what you're copying. But is there is there any lag or any delay that the user would see with your your technology? No, that's the beauty of it. Not necessarily at all. Our agent is designed to be specifically lightweight, so not wanting to throw around kind of vendor buzzwords, but just to clear a few things up, we're kind of a kernel level agent, uh, which means we're not a log forwarding technology. So what we're not doing is reading a whole load of Windows, Mac or Linux log files, trying to figure out what's happening and then putting that into kind of a platform and then making decisions. We at the operating system level, as the operating system does something, understand what's happening. In relation to content inspection, we, we don't try and reinvent the wheel as well, because operating systems like Windows and like Mac already, for the majority of file types, do content inspection for their indexing. When you do a search on a machine, the OS knows what's inside those files already because it's already indexed them. 
So we jump on the back of that. We can do full fat content inspection as well, but more often than not, our agent doesn't need to do that. So the inspection is lightning quick, like I say, at the point of access. So it's not a case of access a file, 10 minutes later, you're, you have a decision as to whether or not you're allowed to access it. These things within our clients happen instantaneously, which is one of the reasons I joined the company, because it is pretty cool to see. Yeah, look, I mean, my experience with some of the vendors in DLP is, that, is not that. It's the opposite. Yeah. Um, and, 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 uh, and that's why I was curious, because you're obviously using some sort of heuristics to that you're applying depending on the, on the context of the, of the, the, the content being transferred. Um, so you're cheating a little bit, and I don't mean that in a, in a nasty way, but you, you've, you're, preser- you're pres- pres- presuming what you have to do because of the, the channel of communication and the content, which optimizes the, the data review. Is that the right way? Not so much heuristics at all. Um, it, it, it is as simple as it sounds. You know, the real-time content inspection is based on pattern matching within the file. However, a yeah. lot of the we're looking at kind of we don't necessarily have to read every line of the file because the OS has already done that at the point sure. of writing. Um, so that builds in kind of an optimization as well. Additionally, unlike a lot of other platforms, is that all of this stuff happens on the endpoint by our agent doing it. Um, as, as opposed to what we don't want to do is fire up a load of stuff into an analytics cloud to determine what's inside the file. You know, for two reasons. One, it's slow. And two, there's a certain irony to purchasing a piece of software to stop sensitive data being transferred out of your environment when that piece of software does the transferring of sensitive, identifies sensitive data and then transfers it out of your environment. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense to us to do it that way. So things like the machine learning and the um, ideas around kind of content inspection all happen on the endpoints. And the results of these actions, the metadata is what's transferred into our platform and the control plane has done that. But mm-hmm. we as a software provider, we don't we don't pull any customer data into any of our cloud infrastructure because you know it's the customer's data it's not ours why would we want it no i understand i mean that, that makes sense because it's, it's an edge computer play so you've got localized learning that's shared centrally and and, and the learning is what's shared not the content which makes you know it, it, it's a very secure way of doing it and also low, low bandwidth exactly uh, and how often is that updated is that is it updated you know every day every week every month no that's an interesting thing we are kind of a full-on DevSec, DevOps, or whatever the latest buzzword is company. So we are constantly innovating uh, with our platforms. So generally speaking, the cloud platform gets updated every month, sometimes sooner. As new features are developed, tested, and implemented, they get put into the platform straight away. The agent as well, regular updates, uh, sometimes twice a month, sometimes uh, sometimes monthly, as new features and new augmentations are brought, brought in. And that happens seamlessly to the end customer. The platform updates the agents with zero downtime as well, which is pretty cool. Cool. That's really clever. Um, what, what is the what is the end user's experience? I mean, do they do they know you're there? Do they know that it's next DLP or is it branded to be the customer? No, they know it's they know it's next DLP. It's not, you know, we don't garishly splatter our logo, you know, you know, your data security brought to you by next DLP to the end user. They know we're there when they're required to know that we're there. So for example, when I mentioned these educational pop-ups, so a user breaches a rule or represents a higher 
level of risk at the point of risk. I mentioned these educational pop-ups to put people on the right track come up. Those are basically quite distinctive windows because something we didn't want to do is kind of go down the tooltips platform. And we found, and I found in the past users, where you get standard windows, alert boxes popping up. You know, users tend to just click them like the accept cookies button. You know, there's a lot of desensitization to that. So we've deliberately made those eye-catching and customizable to the user end. So they'll see we're there. Um, however, it's quite clear as to why we're there as well. So it's not a kind of a super creepy, what's this awful software on my endpoints. Generally speaking, when a pop-up comes up and gives users information, it's something that's going to make their day easier rather than more difficult. No, it sounds good. And I think it's such an important thing nowadays, especially if you're working from home. It's so easy for, for forget the, the, you know, our sort of situation, we work from home in our own house or whatever, if you're in a house share or something like that, where your screen's up there and someone can see stuff. I mean, you can't obviously protect against that without, you know, some sort of physical boundary. But, you know, if, if you leave your laptop unattended and your housemate comes and emails themselves something, you know, that's a risk that yeah. needs to be, you know, mitigated somehow. Well, absolutely. And we've got an interesting answer to that. It's strange you mentioned that, um, that we've got in relation to, we've got the DLP policies, you know, your classic ones, and that's all very, very good. But we've also got a certain degree of machine learning on the endpoints as well. And one of the policies that we've got is um, an unexpected user typing on a keyboard. Now, I know inside of offices and certainly inside of the police, it was a common prank uh, slash punishment if you left your screen unlocked that you would either, depending on how nice your coworker was, it would either be a rather rude email to the boss or it would be an email to the team uh, offering to buy everyone beer or donuts, depending on what time of day it was. However, with our platform, uh, you're able to identify an alert uh, in relation to, okay, so usually this is the person who types on the keyboard based on typing cadence and kind of a pattern that's learned. Should yeah. someone new type on it, then alerts and remediative action can take place all the way up to locking the machine out until security unlock it or prompts and warnings in a security operations center as well, which is quite neat. That's for, yeah, look, I'll be honest, we were very suspicious of those sorts of techniques uh, when I was at uh, UBS, but that's not to say it doesn't work. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a great way of doing it in the sense of a biometric marker of some sort, you know, keyboard cadence. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking of, of what we used to do when guys used to leave the machines unlocked. I mean, we had guys writing resignation emails for the person. I mean, we were, you know, quite immature to be honest. But um, absolutely, and if you think about it, a breach of the Computer Misuse Act, but nobody necessarily thinks thinks it necessarily constitutes that because you're using somebody else's IT infrastructure under the wrong. Yeah credentials but but my, my favorite one which i don't know if you ever tried and i wonder if how your tool would pick this up if it could or maybe it could i don't know is we used to screenshot what was on the screen and then you'd go and hide all the icons and you'd replace the background image with the screenshot so it looked like you were logged in and then the person would reboot their machine about 10 times trying to work out why they couldn't click on anything <laughs> yes i've seen that happen before that's a, that's actually a classic one i really do like, like that one that's almost like an older version of the um things during lockdown where i saw people recording short videos on a loop of themselves sitting at their desk nodding occasionally and then they'd set that as their zoom or teams background video on a loop what? so they could so they could join a meeting appear that they were engaging in the meeting, but would actually be kind of off somewhere, you know, eating pizza or having to I, I never thought to do that. I'm clearly no. too, um, 
too committed. <laughs> now, I, I only saw that because there was one where, um, you know, there's this guy at the meeting nodding and stuff. And then all of a sudden, kind of a five-year-old comes and sits in the chair, breaks all the green screen and is busy like, playing on the desk. And it, so it becomes quite clear that uh, actually the person's not sitting at their desk. Now, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think how you actually, I, mean, I want to try that out just to see how you do it. But it, I mean, most people just turn the camera off and they walk around with headphones on. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's how we used to do it before we had uh, video, you know, camera and call all the time. So, yeah, I'm just thinking what, you know, it's such a lot of, it's, it's more effort to do that than it is to actually just probably do the meeting or be engaged. But I would probably think they were doing other work and that's probably what they had to do. No, exactly. And it's strange you mentioned that around the more effort to do the wrong thing than to do the right thing. And again, that's something that we want to achieve in our platform is to present the options, you know, block the bad things, but make it easier for end users to be able to do the right thing rather than doing the wrong one. Um, but yeah, it kind of goes across the video conferencing and the DLP space. Well, the wider cyberspace even. Yeah, so it's, a, it's amazing how um, I'm just thinking about this, just setting that up. When you, with what you're doing, and I'm just wondering about this maybe from a from a different type of security point of view. I mean, you mentioned the biometrics with the keyboard cadence. I mean, have you ever thought of looking at the actual camera and, and seeing who's sitting in the seat and comparing them? That is an interesting that is an interesting proposition. Um, as far as I know, as a company, we haven't. And I think one of the issues, one of the perceived issues that people see with cybersecurity and user behavior monitoring type software is the creepiness factor of it all. Yeah. You know, on one hand, we want to have visibility into what's happening. But on the other hand, especially uh, in the wider European Union and certain countries as well, you know, there is a lot of resistance. Security is always in tension with privacy. So on one hand, I think that could have potentially a lot of collateral intrusion issues in relation to kind of capturing and analyzing that kind of data. And that's something as a company we take really, really seriously. You know, our platform, although it does act a lot like a real-time flight recorder for computers, you know, everything that happens even outside of the rules is captured and analyzed and kind of risk is kind of determined. However, we are acutely aware of some of the privacy concerns that can uh, cause. So our platform can be operated in standard mode where you just see all of the events and stuff. But we also have a pseudo anonymized mode where all of the individual identifiable data is pseudo anonymized, a lot in the way that we used to do in the we used to do when I worked in intelligence, you know, substituting names for different names. So, um, for example, Chris Denby White on the platform would appear as John Martinson or John Smith. And throughout the entire platform, I would remain to be John Martinson and John Smith. So the upshot is that investigators and security professionals can still conduct their investigations, identify risk without actually knowing who the people are that are under investigation until the point at which an ICO or someone needs to know, and then those can be the right access roles and privilege be de-anonymized for those specific people. So it's a really neat feature. It enables you to have the visibility without necessarily encroaching too much on that creepiness factor or um, invading people's privacy. Yeah, I think it's so important, you know, especially with with a, a I, I want to say a, a difference of, of, of approach in the US versus the rest of the world in some respects around privacy. Indeed. Uh, 
and and theirs is fractured in that obviously some states are doing things like California, I think, is one. Yes. Uh, talking to my cousin the other day, I think he's doing he's doing some work on that now in, in the, on the east coast. And you know, I was talking to someone yesterday in Cape Town, and I asked him about getting something. He said, "Nope, can't give it to you." You know, under Poppy, which is what GDPR is basically based on, it's just the rig- the rigmarole to give it to you is just too much to even have even start the conversation. So if you could do something, and, and I said to him, you know, we'd clean it up, we'd, 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 we'd sanitize the data, et cetera, and he said, look, not even worth it. The guys won't sign it off. It's just, just one of those things. So if it's if it's something that is almost prepackaged into your activity, then that, you know, that's, that's a win for everyone because it's already happening automatically. There's no need for someone to look at it first in its unsanitized state and then sanitize it or you know, de-anonymize to anonymized state. Exactly. And, you know, it's the ability, because I've seen other products that I've used in the past that have done kind of anonymization. And sometimes what you get is either the old, like you see in the movies, the CIA redacted document, which is a sheet of A4 paper with one word at the front, one word at the bottom, and then black in the rest of the space. And generally speaking, that's useful to no one. So we wanted to take the approach of being able to properly investigate start to finish, whilst ensuring that the person doing the investigator doesn't know who the person being investigated is, you know, partly for privacy, but also partly for kind of things like inbuilt biases or if it's the person sitting next to them, you know, it kind of not only protects privacy, but it also protects the integrity of an investigation as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. Great. I mean, I think I think we had a good conversation. Anything else you want to add? No, not really. Outside of if there are people listening here that would like to have a sensible conversation around DLP that just works, that won't result in being hounded by salespeople. Because as I mentioned before, I'm not a salesperson for our platform. I don't, uh, you know, I work with current customers, but I am super passionate about helping people do the best they can in cybersecurity, you know, because if people can achieve things individually as companies, it has a knock-on effect for the rest of us. You know, the the more secure we are individually, the more secure we are as a community as well. So if anyone has any interest, please do do reach out and um, for a no-nonsense conversation about what we do and how we might be able to help. And and what's the best way on LinkedIn? Or do you want to go to the website, email address? Um, either on link, either on LinkedIn. Please feel free to reach out and connect to me, or or if you wanted to visit our website, which is www.nextdlp.com. But uh, again, like I say, I really love engaging in the community, so feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn, uh, ask any questions, and start a conversation. I love that kind of thing. Fantastic, great stuff. Well, thanks very much for coming on and sharing all your your expertise. That's no problem at all. It's been a great pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.